God is good. All the time. You know, sometimes we, we wonder, I, I've been asked before, when did Easter happen? And the correct response is Easter's still happening. Easter is still happening. As, Rome, as Paul sat in a Roman prison cell awaiting capital trial, he's contemplating whether it's best for the Christian movement for him to live or to die. He's not being melodramatic or morbid. He's being analytical. He has been most clear. He's good either way. But now he takes a moment to unpack his thinking in greater detail. Verse 22 through 24. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. God called Paul to be an interpreter of the gospel, a Christian apologist, a writer, a church planner, an evangelist to the Gentiles, an apostle. After his conversion on the road to Damascus, he had relentlessly dedicated his life to fulfilling that call. Upon his incarceration, the always-in-motion Paul suddenly had some stationary time. Anybody like me, just tend to always stay in motion. You know, I I hate to say it, but I'm a little bit like an old Eagle song. The sound of my own wheels starts driving me crazy if I'm not moving a lot of times. And sometimes I have to be made to lie down in green pastures. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I have to be made to lie down in green pastures. My guess is there's zero chance Paul stops And does this introspective kind of work if he's not incarcerated. He's just not going to do it. But now he's got some time to think about the people he's reached and the churches he's planted and his extensive body of work. I don't know about you, but I am a little more reflective now that I'm older. And every now and then I'll do what I call turn over the back of the baseball card and look at the stats. And I think about all the places I've been and the people we've met and the things God has done. And sometimes they take a certain solace in just being there. Paul's taken stock of his life and he's taken stock of his ministry. And his conclusion is that he's not afraid to die. Why? Because he's chosen to live. When Christ is our central purpose for living, it changes how we see death. I wonder how many Christians can truly say, with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Might it be that many of us could more honestly say, for me to live is work, or for me to live is family, or for me to live is to achieve, or for me to live is earn, or for me to live is amuse myself. If our lives are based on anything other than Christ, death represents an unwelcome ending. But if our life is in Christ, death represents an eagerly anticipated beginning. I wonder how many people never fully live because they spend their whole lives afraid of dying. I get asked all the time, how do you remember so many people's names? 
And I give them the honest response because I'm not afraid to get names wrong. I've only done that once tonight. <laughs> Very seldom happens twice. Uh, I'm not afraid. The reason I know a lot of names is because I'm not afraid to get names wrong. I, I may call you by the wrong name, but you will correct me. And I will probably remember that moment. <laughs> and I'll probably get the right name attached to you. And that's a good thing. Until we take the fear of death offline, I don't think we'll ever be in a position to embrace the fullness of the Christian life. And as Paul juxtaposes life and death, it's interesting to me that he sees distinct advantages to both. We know that Paul struggled throughout his life with what he called a thorn in his flesh. Uh, I would simply define that those areas of our lives that bring us down, but they are tensions to be managed, not problems to be solved. Are you with me there? Anything that's going on in your life, you have to identify, is this a tension to be managed or a problem to be solved? If you treat a tension to be managed like a problem to be solved, you will have a disaster. And if you treat a problem to be solved like a, teaching, like a tension to be managed, you'll have a disaster on the other side. One of the first things I do is identify, is this a problem to be solved or is this a tension to be managed? Whatever Paul's thorn in the flesh was, it was a tension to be managed. It didn't go away. Some of you may have addiction in your background. And you may know I am one drink away from my life being completely out of control again. Uh, that's a tension to be managed. It's a tension to be managed. Others of you may have things in your life that you honestly could take authority over. Those are problems to be solved. It's just good to know the difference. Paul had health issues. We know Luke probably joined because Paul needed a personal doctor. I think Paul had malaria. And I think it kicked up at times and was debilitating at times. Paul was constantly opposed and slandered. He was beaten, rejected, shipwrecked, arrested, and imprisoned. Enduring hardship and persecution was just another day at the office for Paul. You know, we, we, we get career-ending stomach cramps if somebody chips at us on Facebook. I mean, Paul is getting really persecuted every day of his life. For him, death was a doorway to uninterrupted communion with the one who saved him and to whom he had dedicated his life. Dying at this point in the game would sort of be like retiring from a really, 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 really hard job that gets more stressful by the day. But Paul wasn't a selfish man. He was a driven man. And what drove him was this calling that God had placed upon his life. At this point in the game, there were dozens, perhaps hundreds of churches that had been planted by Paul. There were thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of Paul's direct converts who needed discipled. And there were hundreds, perhaps thousands of leaders who needed to be identified and mentored if this Christian movement was going to move on for their sustained ministries, for the spiritual development and encouragement of them in their faith. Paul was willing to keep on living. If the Lord saw fit. 
Verse 25, knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. The Romans did not keep people in prison indefinitely, especially Roman citizens like Paul. As I've said so many times, deep in the Roman mind, they didn't believe people should get free room and board at state expense simply because they couldn't behave themselves. What they tended to do was beat the daylights out of you and set you free. Uh, The worse your crime, the more they tended to beat the daylights out of you. If you were in prison, you were kind of in this suspended animation waiting for a powerful someone to pronounce your innocence, your guilt, or to determine the conditions of your return to normal time. Paul is caught up in the suspended animation. He's feeling the way you do when there are cutbacks coming at work, but you don't yet know what they'll be. When we're waiting on medical test results that could change our life, but they're not yet in When there's a family crisis that's not yet played out, Paul's caught up in what I would call in the meantime. And i got to tell you, a lot of our lives are lived in the meantime. When I was young and bad things would happen, I would say, Lord, I can't wait till this bad thing's gone. And now that I'm old, guess what I've discovered? Bad things are the constants in life, not the variables. How we deal with them is the variable. Whatever it is that's stressing you, when it's all resolved, there'll be something else. There'll be something else. So that's the constant. The variable, how we deal with it. Paul is caught up in this. So to fulfill his calendar, to kind of make sure his outlook isn't empty, he shifts his attention. He pivots from planting a church or mentoring a leader to leaving a legacy. I started writing a few years back because of my historical sensibilities. Uh, Preachers are forgotten when they die. But if you want to have influence and leave a legacy, you write. You write. Uh, If William Barclay had been a preacher and not written, no one would know William Barclay's name today. But because he wrote a series of commentaries that have been probably the most popular commentaries of the last two centuries, uh, many serious Christians know exactly who he is because he wrote. I got this ping a few years back that I wanted to leave a legacy. And if I had anything to offer... Generations beyond my life I needed to write. Paul is just saying, hey, I would rather preach. I would rather travel. Paul had wanderlust. Man, there was nowhere Paul didn't want to go. Let me tell you where I don't want to go. Almost everywhere. (laughs) I mean, seriously. You want to know what I want to do? I want to drive home, sit at my cabin. I, I, I really have this huge wood thing that I finally got repaired and primed. It really needs painted. You know, would you rather go to Austria or paint your wood feature? That is a no-brainer for me. I'd rather paint my wood feature. Uh, I I don't have this compulsion that I've got to go all the time at this point in my life. I I did when I was young. 
Paul never outgrew that compulsion, but he was made to lie down in green pastures. And in a sense, God sort of forced him into leaving a legacy. But I think it's worth noting, in the most uncertain time of his life, Paul turned his energies outward. When you are in bad situations, you have a choice. You can turn your energy inward, and that will usually be debilitating. Or you can turn your energy outward. Paul turned it out. Paul is willing to keep on living. And he's going to turn his energy out. Verse 26. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he's doing through me. I think a good prayer in a time of crises is, Almighty God, I will love you and serve you no matter how all this turns out. But if there's a good resolution, if I do get my health back, if I do get my finances back, if I do stay on the wagon, if I do get my relationships back, if I do get my life back, I will sure be in a position to give you all the praise, all the honor, and all of the glory. Remember what David wrote? God, who's going to praise you if I go down into the pit? I think we often do a far better job of taking our petitions to God than we do thanking God when those petitions are granted. Our annual horse trough Sunday was last week, and by the end of the day, I pulled 60 people out of the water. 60 people out of the water. It kind of ended up being one Advil for every 10 people. By the end of the day, when I got pre-death rigor mortis on my way home from Peoria, where I had to drive that afternoon, take a look real quick at what God did Sunday. There's some powerful moments, but if you knew some of the backstories, uh, it would be even more powerful. Hopefully, we'll get to tell some of those stories in the weeks to come. What we collectively experienced on Sunday was a movement of the Holy Spirit. Whether you were here live or worshiping with us online, which was any of you that worshiped online, it was powerful to see online. God's presence was powerful. And undeniable. After that service, I drove up to Peoria, where I, I preached an evening service, and drove back that night. 
I got to work on Monday morning, and I felt compelled to go into the still very wet sanctuary and just give God thanks. We had prayed for a movement. We experienced a movement. But how many times do we pray and God answers our prayer and we don't say thanks? I just went in and told God, thank you. You know, I was reminded of something my mom used to ask me when somebody gave me a gift when I was young. She'd always say, Shane, did you remember to say thank you? Might be a good question for all of us tonight. Do we remember to say thank you? As we continue to invite people to church every week with the 500 initiative, I have found that Thanksgiving and evangelism are actually natural partners. A case in point would be what we used to call saying grace. You guys with me saying grace? When I was growing up, Christians, regular Christians, offered a prayer of thanksgiving before they ate. Right? Anybody grow up doing this? You pray before you ate? Yeah. I remember one of the first prayers I ever learned was, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Right? Do you guys used to memorize prayers? I mean, the other one was, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray to God my soul to keep if I should. <coughs> before I wake, I pray to God my soul to take. I remember that one. I mean, I was always sitting there thinking, man, if God's not planning to take my soul tonight, why would I give him ideas? I mean, that, that always, always struggle with that as a child. But these, these kind of prayers, we used to sing. We had one, for health and strength and daily food, we give our thanks, O Lord. We used to sing, and we did all kinds of stuff, but it was a big part of things. Saying grace. If saying grace is not a common practice for your family... I would like to encourage you to adopt it. Just adopt it. It doesn't have to be really, really long. And you don't have to pray like a pilgrim. Right? Just my favorite grace is really simple. I just take a deep breath and I say, Almighty God, we are so blessed. And we're grateful. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Uh, Adopt that. I want to say it's an act of thanksgiving, but when it occurs in public places, it can also be a witness. Dad and I were having coffee earlier this week, which is not shocking because we have coffee about every four days a week. I would say we, we have coffee. Uh, I'm the youngest old dude at McDonald's, uh, which is great. Uh, and so dad's kind of in the middle of the pack. Me, I'm on the young side of the old dudes. But we have coffee, and, and somebody from the church stopped by our table uh, early in the week. And they just gave us a real quick story about somebody that they were talking to at work. They knew us and, and blah, 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 those kind of things. And the person said, he goes, you know what? I deal with about 200 customers and often in social situations and this person that they were telling me about, they said, it's the only person I know that, gives, that says grace before they eat. And they said, when they're by themselves, they said they don't make everybody pray at the table, you know? You know, think about it. You know, you're at the table like with 42 heathens. Would everyone please stop for a moment? We're going to say grace. You know, that's not it. But uh, he said this person will just bow their head, just quietly, just, just bow their head. 
and, and for three or four seconds, but he said it's a powerful witness. It's what he noticed about that person. And the other thing is, I have noticed so many times, if you say grace in public, you would be shocked how many people take notice of that, particularly nowadays because people don't do it much anymore. And it is not uncommon for somebody to walk up and say, hey, I really appreciated that. I saw that, and I appreciate it. It's one way to make a witness. And you know what you can do? You say grace in a public place, and somebody comes up, and they say, hey, I really appreciated that. You pull out your little 500 card <laughs> right there. You say, hey, we'd like to invite you to our church. We're the kind of church that says grace before we eat. How you like that? And other times, it can lead to a conversation. Just you saying grace. Just put it out there. See, see if God wants to do something with it. Verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. This is the kind of thing, if you don't know anything about history, you miss this entire thing. And that's where I come in. I'm going to help you kind of think through this, all right? As Paul's preparing his spiritual children in Philippi for his possible death, he's going to offer three pieces of advice. This is intensified by the preference in Greek, preface in Greek that says above all, all right? Above all. This is really important stuff right here. Three pieces of advice in uncertain times. Number one, live as citizens of heaven. Now, if you're just reading that yourself, you're going to go, next. No, no, no. This is huge. Philippi was a Roman colony, meaning it functioned as exact, exactly as though it were located in Italy. They spoke Latin. They dressed like Romans. They copied Roman fashion. They weren't Europeans. They were Romans. It didn't matter one bit that Rome was 600 miles away. Additionally, Philippi boasted many Roman citizens who enjoyed special status in the empire. Citizens of Rome uh, were the very top of the social hierarchy. This town of Philippi, which probably had about 7,500 people in it, good-sized town, boasted a lot of those kind of people. Paul is saying that Christians are citizens of something much more significant than Rome. We are citizens of heaven. We are encouraged to live on earth as we will one day live in heaven. We are encouraged to love on earth as we will one day love in heaven. We are encouraged to worship on earth as we will one day worship in heaven. Paul told the church to live as Christians as intently and joyfully as the European Philippians lived as Romans. Number two, fight for the good news together. This does not mean that we have to agree on every little thing. But it does mean that we have to unite fully and without compromise in our core theology and our common mission. In 2021, we disaffiliated from the United Methodist denomination. We are now an independent church. Though the process was painful and we did lose some people over it. It had an unanticipated upside, something I didn't see coming. We were left with a theologically united and a missionally aligned congregation. 
The people who didn't like our traditional viewpoints on the centrality of Christ or the authority of the Bible or our traditional stances on human sexuality left. And everybody who stayed wanted to be here. As did those who came thereafter. Standing unapologetically for a traditional and orthodox understanding of Christianity and the Bible will increasingly have us opposing the values of a godless culture. But what I want to suggest to you, we'll be standing on solid ground. And we'll be standing there together. Verse 28. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but you are going to be saved even by God himself. Number three, don't be intimidated. A godless culture will argue with Christianity, but a demonic culture will rage against it. I'm going to say it one more time. A godless culture will argue with Christianity, but a demonic culture will rage against it. The the agnostic rationalist says, I think, therefore, I am. So they build an argument for the purpose of affecting change. They're trying to build something. The manic demoniac says, I am outraged, therefore I am, emotes solely for the purpose of inflicting chaos. The demonic is always bent on destruction. The devil doesn't persuade. The devil coerces. And if we allow ourselves to be intimidated, we will either become immobilized on one hand and withdraw our witness from the public square, or we will get all mad and add to the hate and vitriol that's already out there, and that doesn't do any good either. My response in a culture of outrage is really, really basic. And here you go. I am not in a bad mood, but I'm not backing down either. That's it. You're not going to get me upset. I mean, I may unfriend you, but you're not going to get me upset. But I'm not backing down. You can scream and you can yell, you can huff and you can puff, but really it's not going to change anything. Uh, Because at the end of the day, I don't really care what Satan thinks. And I don't really care what the people working for him think either. I only care about what God thinks. And I believe that what God thinks is communicated clearly through the Bible, so I am going to stick with the Bible. I believe... The best life of any individual is lived according to the clear and consistent teachings of the Bible. So where I stand, I stand in love, not in hate. And you can yell hater all you want. And it's just all going to sound like an adult on a Charlie Brown special. Where I stand, I stand out of love. I believe God wants what is best for every human being. And I believe God has clearly outlined that in his word. And I believe that standing for Orthodox Christianity is a position of love. And the other thing is, take a look at where our society is headed. You tell me that's going to work out well for anybody. And I'll laugh my head off because we are headed to destruction. The hope of the world is Jesus. The hope of the world is Jesus. 
if this culture and the Bible disagree, I'm going to stick with the Bible. If me and the Bible disagree, I'm going to stick with the Bible. If you and the Bible disagree, I'm going to suggest you should stick with the Bible. Because the reality is that when the sensibilities of this culture are long forgotten, the word of God is still going to be shining like a new dime. When Satan's minions can't intimidate us, guess what they do? They go ballistic. They just go ballistic. Why? Because they are reminded that they will ultimately be destroyed. There will always be satanic attacks directed toward those who stand for truth. And you don't have to be in a bad mood about it to be attacked. I've proved that. I don't attack anybody. Uh, I'm still going to take my share. People want to take a shot at me, knock themselves out. If God doesn't protect me, I don't have a chance. I'm not going to sit and defend myself. I'm not going to start throwing dirt at people who throw dirt at me because there's no place to stop. But I'm not backing down either. There will always be satanic counterattacks toward those who make bold advances for the kingdom of God. Satan has a narrative. He, he's a liar. He's the father of lies. And when you stand for God, there will always be people who work for the devil. And they will call you all kinds of things, and they will shoot the Satan's narrative at you. And sometimes when you hear it enough, it's hard to not start believing it yourself. You want to know why evangelism has essentially died in the American church? It's because we have allowed Satan to convince us that the gospel's not good news. Everybody wants to share good news. But we've allowed ourselves to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is bad news. Folks, it is good news. It changes the trajectory of our eternity. It puts us in position to live our best lives. The gospel is really, really good news. When Satan attacks, we cannot go missile and become unhinged on one hand and we can't back down on the other. And you want to know why? Because there's too much at stake. When we know what we believe, we no longer live in the fear of people. And we no longer live in the fear of Satan. And we no longer live in the fear of death. And those who don't fear people or Satan or death are invincible. And that's really what Paul's saying. I may live. I may die. I'm good either way. Verse 29. For you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering with him. Paul reminds the church in Philippi that God both gave them the privilege of being a persecuted church in a Roman colony and being his closest partners in ministry. And if this dichotomy seemed too daunting for the Philippians, they were employed to rejoice for this is the ministry that God had chosen for them. When we begin to view the inevitable burdens we bear as opportunities for faithfulness and obedience, we've entered a new place in our spiritual journey. I don't, I don't want to sound crass here, but Christians are going to have to stop feeling sorry for themselves. We're living our best lives. We're standing on solid ground. We will spend eternity with God. What do we have to feel sorry for ourselves about? 
we need to embrace this understanding. If we live, praise God. If it's our time to die, praise God. But whether we live or die, let us be in Christ. Verse 30. We're in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past. And you know I am still in the midst of it. Tensions to be managed. I like the word community to describe a church far better than I like congregation. I think it's because deep in my heart when we get together, I hope we do more than simply congregate. I hope we commune. Our mission is to connect people with Jesus Christ, and we're all part of this mission together. At times, in faith community, we'll experience rapturous joy, like we did Sunday, watching 60 people get pulled out of the water. And at other times, we'll experience agonizing pain. As a community, we're to share each other's burdens, and we are to celebrate each other's victories. Living for God in a fallen world is hard, and that's why God gave us one another, and that's why God gave us the church. Living a Christian life in a fallen world is too hard to do by yourself, and God's given us the gift of one another. Are they gifts that function perfectly? Nope. Is the church a gift that functions perfectly? Absolutely. Do the people in it function perfectly? Absolutely not. Some people say, well, the church has hurt me. The church of Jesus Christ has never hurt anyone. It is God's chosen instrument to bring salvation to the world's people. Screw everything up. Not about to blame the church of Jesus Christ on people. The church is of God. It is the bride of Christ. And to the extent we get it right, we are part of the bride. And to the extent we get it wrong, we splash mud on the wedding gown. Some of you have great uncertainties in front of you right now. You are living in that in-between. You have tensions that you don't seem to be able to manage very well. You have problems that will not resolve. And they leave you trapped in the in-between. And maybe unlike Paul, who shared outward, maybe you can't get it turned around. It's just destroying you. The uncertainties you feel might be spiritual or emotional, medical, relational, vocational, financial. You're just in a point, a place where you can't really go back and you can't really move forward. And you're just going to have to wait them out until you can, again, meet them head on. Some of you here tonight may be feeling really, really heavy pressure. And if you allow yourself, that pressure is going to consume your whole life. I just want to suggest that you can have victory. And you can make spiritual movement. And God can actually use you even in the midst of unresolved difficult times. Can I push this just a tad further? Even if your difficult times are self-inflicted. If I've described you tonight, um, I just felt a ping to pray for you. And I, I don't know how to do this without embarrassing you, but I'm, at, I, I'm just too old not to go with the pings. Is that all right? I, I am. I'm just too old not to go with the pings. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm just going to ask everyone just to bow your head a minute and look into your heart. But if, you, if I just described you, you're just caught up in these uncertainties of life that would just eat you up and spit you out if you let them. I'm just going to ask you to stand up right now because I, I want to pray a very specific prayer for you. 
If that's you, I just want to ask you to stand up right now because I want to pray a very, very specific prayer that God put on my heart just for you. Anybody else? Almighty God, be with these who are encapsulated by uncertainty. Remind them of your sure deliverance, your abiding presence, and that you will finish the work that you have begun in each of them. Despite the noise that surrounds them, protect them and empower them to focus solely on Christ. We repent of our fear and our timidity and our anxiety. And we accept your power, love, and sound mind. Enable us to love well, trust well, live well, and one day die well. We rebuke fear. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke fear. And we choose faith. All praise to you, our rock, our refuge, our hope, our strength, and our redeemer. And we pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we worship together? The altar is always open if you'd like to come and pray.